Hey everyone, Pastor Joel here, and I am coming to you today to do some makeup work. Um, as many of you know, I've been out sick for a couple of weeks, and that means that our study in the Gospel of Luke has been somewhat interrupted as I've been on my sick bed and not in the pulpit. And uh, some of those two weeks that I was gone, we're going to make up for in the Sunday morning service coming up, and some of it we're going to make up for right here. Um, so I hope you're ready to go along with me through a portion of the Gospel of Luke um, and to study one of these parables that Jesus tells, or Jesus tells. And if you're not ready, why don't you pause right here, go grab a Bible that you can use while, as we look at this together, this parable from the Gospel of Luke in chapter 16, and uh, we'll study this together. So just go ahead and pause, go grab yourself a Bible, come back and hit play. All right, you're back. Now let's get into it. Luke chapter 16, the parable of the dishonest manager. But before we get into this, I got to tell you, this is one of the strangest parables and maybe one of the most difficult to understand parables in the entire Bible and all the parables that Jesus tells in the gospel. And it's strange and it's hard to understand for really a few different reasons. First, it's about a guy who does a bad job and he is dishonest by nature in how he does his work. And Jesus seems to commend this dishonest guy, saying that he's doing something wise and good. But now, obviously, there's a, something of a contradiction there. How can Jesus commend a dishonest man? Plus, Jesus uses some really odd terms in this parable. For instance, he tells us to make friends by, quote-unquote, unrighteous wealth. What does that mean? Because <laughs> unrighteous wealth certainly doesn't sound like a very wholesome and Christ-like thing. And he even tells us to make friends by unrighteous wealth. And I don't know about you, but to me that sounds like he's telling us to maybe grease some palms, to bribe some people and act shady in order to make friends kind of under the table. Is that what Jesus is telling us to do in this parable? So this is a tricky one. This is a difficult one. And some of those difficulties are due to cultural differences between us and first century Israel, and some are due to translation issues between Greek and English. Now, the context of this parable is that Jesus is eating with tax collectors and sinners, and the Pharisees are criticizing him for doing that, and he has told them some parables that show how he has come to find lost people. You remember the parable of the lost sheep, the lost coin, and the lost son. But with this parable now, He's going to put the screws to the Pharisees a bit. And we start out here in chapter 16 with verse 1. He also said to the disciples, There was a rich man who had a manager, and charges were brought to him that this man was wasting his possessions. And he called him and said to him, What is this that I hear about you? Turn in the account of your management, for you can no longer be manager. And the manager said to himself, well, what shall I do, since my master is taking the management away from me? I'm not strong enough to dig, and I'm ashamed to beg. I have decided what to do, so that when I am removed from management, people may receive me into their houses. So summoning his master's debtors one by one, he said to the first, How much do you owe my master? And he said, A hundred measures of oil. And he said to him, Take your bill and sit down quickly and write fifty. Then he said to another, And how much do you owe? And he said, a hundred measures of wheat. And he said to him, take your bill and write 80. So here's what happens. This manager is bad at his job. He's wasting the resources of this guy he works for. His employer hears about it and calls him into a meeting and basically says, hey, you're fired. 
So the manager knows that he's going to be out on his rear end, so he contemplates what's next for him. He could dig ditches, but for whatever reason, that's not an option for him. Or he could resort to begging, but he says that's beneath him. So he comes up with this devious plan to lower the debts of people who owe his master money. So he goes to the one guy who owes about 100 measures of olive oil, and he lowers it to 50 measures. Now, that is hugely significant because 100 measures of oil would be about three years worth of wages in first century Israel. So the guy who owes 100 measures of oil is extremely happy to hear that he now only owes 50. Then he goes to this guy who owes 100 measures of wheat, which is about eight years worth of wages, and the manager lowers his debt to 80, which again is a huge savings for the guy who owes the debt. And so the end result is that the manager's boss gets back some of what he is owed, and at the same time, the manager has some people out there who are going to owe him a favor. So that when he's fired, there will be a couple of people out there who will take him in because they owe him one, right? Everybody wins. Well, except the manager's boss. Uh, but, but verse 8 is interesting. Take a look at verse 8. It says, The master commended the dishonest manager for his shrewdness. Now, you should note that the master didn't commend him for his dishonesty. He didn't think he was now a good manager. Rather, he commended him for his shrewdness. In other words, his ability to look into the future and plan ahead for himself. Sure, that planning involved some shady dealing, but what he's commended for is having the foresight to plan wisely. But then Jesus says some things that are really quite surprising on their face. Look again at verse 8, the last half of verse 8. Jesus says, For the sons of this world are more shrewd in dealing with their own generation than the sons of light. Now, that's a very obscure sentence that can be hard to understand. First, Jesus is making a distinction between the sons of this world and the sons of light. The sons of this world are unbelievers, and the sons of light are God's people. And Jesus says that the sons of this world are more shrewd in dealing with their own generation than are the sons of light. Now, based on the parable that he just told, we can know that what Jesus means is that people of the world are more inclined to give thought to their physical well-being than God's people are to give to their spiritual well-being. In other words, people are more inclined to think about this life than the life to come, when in reality it should be just the exact opposite, right? Of course, the life to come is much more important than the here and now, but the way we use our resources would tend to suggest that we don't really believe that. The way we tend to use our resources suggests that we believe that this is all there is. So let's focus on comfort and pleasure and entertainment and meeting all of our desires with no thought to using our resources for a different life that is yet to come. So Jesus points out this discrepancy, and then he says something else that probably raises your eyebrows in verse 9. He says, I tell you, make friends for yourselves by means of unrighteous wealth, so that when it fails, they may receive you into the eternal dwellings. What? <laughs> Jesus is telling his followers to make friends by means of unrighteous wealth? Is Jesus telling us to bribe to people to make friends or to put people uh, on the take in order to gain their approval so that when we get into a scrape, they can bail us out? I don't think so. That's not what he means. Rather, when you hear the term unrighteous wealth, you should think of material possessions like money. That's what Jesus means when he says unrighteous wealth, money. 
So Jesus is telling his followers to use their resources, their money, to make friends for a higher purpose. And he tells us what that purpose is in the rest of the verse. He says, so that when it fails, they may receive you into the eternal dwellings. The only way that your friends made, the only way that your friends made through that unrighteous wealth will receive you into eternal dwellings is if you use your unrighteous wealth to create eternal dwellings for your friends. Does that make sense? It's kind of hard to understand. Let me say it again. The only way that your friends that you make through unrighteous wealth will receive you into eternal dwellings is if you use that unrighteous wealth to create eternal dwellings for your friends. Let me break it down for you like this. What this parable is, is an instruction for Jesus' disciples to use their material resources, including their money, shrewdly and for the purpose of building up Jesus' kingdom. So that when they have exhausted all of their material possessions in building up the kingdom, they will have friends in the kingdom ready to receive them. In other words, use what you have right now for permanent and eternal things, not for temporal and temporary things. See, there is a kingdom coming, and Jesus wants his people to invest in that kingdom by using the resources that they have now to bring people into that kingdom. And when you are out of money, you won't have to come up with some devious scheme for people to take care of you because you will have built the kingdom and there will be many people there waiting and eager to care for you because of what you invested into the kingdom. Now think about that for a minute. Is there anyone in heaven right now waiting to receive you because you invested in the kingdom? That is the instruction to Jesus' followers. Be strategic and intentional about the way you use what God has given you to invest in the kingdom. Be shrewd with how you spend your money. Be shrewd about how you plan for the future. And don't get wrapped up in planning for your own comfort and ease, but rather be shrewd about your money for the sake of the kingdom. Now that is a countercultural message right there, isn't it? Because how do we usually think about our money? Our culture tells us, well, what you have is what you earned, and it's yours to do with as you wish. But Jesus tells us what you have is given to you by God and is to be used for his kingdom. That's a very different message than what our culture tells us. Jesus tells us to think about our resources and our money in a totally different way than what the world tells us. This is similar to what Jesus says in Matthew verse six, excuse me, chapter six, verse 19. He says, do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal, but lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroys and where thieves do not break in and steal. See, God gives us money and resources, not for us to use however we want, but for us to use wisely and to invest back into his kingdom. But I think that whenever we talk about money, we're tempted to affix dollar amounts and percentages to it, right? Uh, We think about tithing. You must give a 10% tithe to the church. Or we ask, well, how much money do I have to give? Is it wrong to buy a new car? Is it wrong to go on vacation, to use my money for things like that instead of building up the kingdom? Well, you'll notice that Jesus never tells his disciples a dollar amount, right, that they should invest into the kingdom or a percentage of their income. No number is ever given and no number should ever be applied 
in some kind of across-the-board universal way. But there's an old line that, becomes, that has become something of a cliche, but it still packs a lot of truth, and that is this. The question is not how much of my money should I give to God, but how much of God's money should I keep for myself? You see, Jesus is calling us, his followers, to look at and think about our money, our resources, in a totally new and different way. Not how much should I spend on myself, but how much of what God has given me should I keep for myself, and then how much should I be investing back into his kingdom? Go to verse 10 now of chapter 16. Jesus says, One who is faithful in a very little is also faithful in much, and one who is dishonest in a very little is also dishonest in much. If then you have not been faithful in the unrighteous wealth, again, that's money, who will entrust you to you the true riches? And if you have not been faithful in that which is another's, who will give, who will give you that which is your own? Now, this statement is directed right at the Pharisees who were there listening to Jesus as well as his disciples. And I have to believe it was very awkward because the Pharisees loved money. They saw it as a sign of God's blessing on them for their righteousness. So the reason they were so wealthy, they thought, was because they were so righteous. But Jesus turns that thinking upside down because he accuses them of being unfaithful when it comes to money. Their view of money is completely wrong. And if their view of something as insignificant as money is wrong, then how can they be trusted when it comes to the loftier issues like spiritual truth? These guys are supposed to be God's gift to the world to show them righteousness, but they utterly blow it when it comes to how they handle money. And if they don't know how to handle money, then they certainly don't know how to handle the things of God. And the opposite is true as well. If you do know how to use your money in a way that honors God and builds the kingdom, then it stands to reason that you have a good handle on the loftier spiritual things as well. John Piper puts it like this. He says, God gives us money for us to use it in such a way that proves to the world that money is not our God. Now let me say that again so it sinks in a little bit. God gives us money for us to use it in such a way that proves to the world that money is not our God. You see, the way you handle your money and resources says something about what you believe about God. It preaches, it tells people what you believe about God. And if you use your money to invest into the kingdom of God, the message it's sending is that you trust God with your future, that there is more to living than this material life. It says that you trust God to provide you with your daily bread. Again, we're not creating a number or a percentage here, but it's just a general guide to consider when you think about your resources, your money, and how you use it. Now go on to verse 13. No servant can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and money. So Jesus draws a very sharp line in the sand here. You will either use your resources in a way that shows that God is your God, or you will use them in a way that shows that money is your God. And this does not only apply to people with great wealth. I think that's a trap we often fall in. We often think that, well, I'm not rich, so this doesn't apply to me. No, not at all. You can be dirt poor and still worship money. 
because you're always trying to get more. You're always trying to get something you want. You're always trying to achieve and succeed and move up to the next financial strata there. The point is not how much money you have or even the amount that you invest into the kingdom, but rather that your disposition is one of trusting God with your resources to the extent that you are free to use your money wisely for his kingdom. That's what Jesus is getting at here. Not a number, and he's not necessarily talking to rich people. Uh, He's talking to all of us, because all of us, no matter what uh, financial category you're in, all of us deal with money, and all of us have this temptation to want more and to want to use it for ourselves and for our own personal gratification in the here and now. Jesus is flipping that on its head, and he's saying, no, there's a new way of thinking about resources. And the way I want my followers to think about it is how much of this can I use to build up the kingdom? No matter where you are, whether you're the wealthiest person in the world or whether you're dirt poor, that is how we are to be regarding our resources and our money. But this is all foolish talk to these Pharisees who are there. Look at verse 14. It says, The Pharisees, who were lovers of money, heard all these things, and they ridiculed him. Now, why would they ridicule him? Well, because they loved money, it says, and he just kind of condemned the way that they thought about money. So yeah, they ridiculed him. But also because they thought that Jesus was trying to do away with the law something that they loved and the reason why they loved money. Because remember, they believed, the Pharisees did, that they were wealthy because of their righteousness, because of their perfection when it came to the law. So Jesus says to them in verse 15, you are those who justify yourselves before men, but God knows your hearts. For what is exalted among men is an abomination in the sight of God. You see, What Jesus is doing here is holding the Pharisees to a higher ethical standard when it comes to money than they held themselves to. The Pharisees wanted a number, right? They wanted a guideline that would tell them how much they had to give in order to be righteous, because that's what they did. They obeyed the law, and they broke everything down into the smallest little categories, and every, everything was measured and had a number to it or a distance to it or, or whatever. You know, according to the law, this is what you can do. This is how much you must give, you know, the minimum amount. They want a number to be able to attach to their righteousness. But through this parable here, Jesus raises the bar. He says that it's not the number that you're giving that matters, but your motivation for how much you give and why you give that matters, even more than the number. Why you give, your motivation for giving, is more important than the amount you're giving. Now, to really hammer this home, Jesus says in verse 16, the law and the prophets were until John... Since then, the good news of the kingdom of God is preached and everyone forces his way into it. But it is easier for heaven and earth to pass away than for one dot of the law to become void. So Jesus says that the law, which the Pharisees love so much, cannot pass away. This is because the law is a representation of God's righteousness. And God's righteousness is more unmovable than heaven and earth. Heaven and earth would sooner pass away than for God's law to become void, Jesus says. 
And he gives an example that seems to us to come out straight out of left field. Look at verse 18. Jesus says, Everyone who divorces his wife and marries another commits adultery, and he who marries a woman divorced from her husband commits adultery. Now, if you're like me, you're like, uh, what? (laughs) How did we get on the topic of divorce? That seems to have come out of nowhere. I mean, boy, did this whole conversation all of a sudden just turn on a dime. But no, it didn't, because this is an example that Jesus uses to show the Pharisees that he's not getting rid of the law, but instead he's actually upping the ante. He's lifting a higher standard that focuses not just on the actions of a person or on the number of what they give, but rather on the heart. That's where the focus is, on the heart, not just the actions. Because the Pharisees, when it comes to divorce, the Pharisees were just fine with divorce for virtually any reason. Right? If a man was unsatisfied with his wife in any way, he just writes up a certificate of divorce and bada boom, bada bing, he's on to a different woman. I mean, seriously, if a man in the first century, you know, according to the law, a man could come home and not like the meal that was placed on his table in front of him and write up a certificate of divorce and go marry another woman. That's how kind of ridiculous it was. But Jesus raises the bar and says that no, Divorce is not that simplistic, Pharisees, and it doesn't matter how many rules you come up with that says that it is. Instead, your motivation matters. The circumstances matter. The context matters. Your heart matters. So rather than doing away with the law, Jesus was actually elevating it beyond accessibility even to the Pharisees. Even the Pharisees now couldn't uh, you know, ascend to what Jesus was saying here. Remember, the Pharisees thought they were the greatest. They thought they were obeying the law perfectly. They did all the right actions, but inside, and this is what Jesus is showing them, inside their hearts are disgusting. So Jesus raises the bar beyond just their actions, and he focuses the law on their hearts. And what do you know? When he does that, they aren't as perfect as they thought they were. And this isn't the only place where Jesus raises the bar. Do you remember the Sermon on the Mount? You've probably heard these words before, but Jesus says, You have heard that it was said, You shall not murder. But I say to you that when you're angry with your brother in your heart, you're guilty of murder. So Jesus raises the bar of the law to not murder, and he applies it to the heart, and suddenly everyone, even the Pharisees, are guilty of murder. And he says... Also in the Sermon on the Mount, he says, You have heard that it was said, You shall not commit adultery. But I say that if you look upon a woman with lust, you have committed adultery with her in your heart. Again, the bar is raised, and it's applied to the heart, and we're all suddenly guilty of adultery, even those Pharisees who thought they were perfect because, no, of course I've never committed adultery. And Jesus says it's not just about what you've done, but about what's going on in your heart. And then Jesus goes on in the Sermon on the Mount. He says, you've heard it said, you know, an eye for an eye, a tooth for a tooth, right? No, I say to you, turn the other cheek. You've heard that it was said to curse your enemies, right? No, I say to you, pray for those who persecute you. So what Jesus is doing in this parable and in this dialogue with the Pharisees is he's raising the bar. You see, what Jesus demands from the world is a complete reordering of priorities and ethics, a complete, completely different and new way of viewing the world, a way of looking at our lives through God's eyes and not through our own eyes. 
Everything you're naturally inclined to think and say and do, Jesus says, no, I have a better way. Follow me. Every way that you're naturally inclined to think about money, which is inherently tainted by selfishness and greed and materialism, Jesus says, no, I have a better way. Follow me. Every way that you're naturally inclined to think about marriage, love, and respect, and romance, and if I don't get those from my spouse, I'll move on to another one, Jesus says, no, I have a better way. Follow me. Now, when it comes to this passage here, there are two responses to this teaching that Jesus is looking for, I think. And the first of those responses is that if you're not a Christian, Jesus wants to apply this to your heart to help you see that you do not measure up to God's law. He wants to raise the bar so high that you can see that you will never get to that bar and that you have sinned and that your sin requires judgment. But Jesus met the law's demands on your behalf, and he will joyfully apply his perfection to your account. And he died on the cross to take the punishment that your sin deserves so that you can stand before God as not guilty of sin. In other words, Jesus wants to save you. This parable that Jesus tells, this weird parable, should show you how much you need him. And second, if you're listening to this and you are a Christian— Jesus wants to reorder the way that you see the world and think about your life. He wants to bring everything about who you are into alignment with this new kingdom that he's building, from the way you think about money to the way you think about your marriage. So the question for you is, are you following Jesus with your money? What does your reaction with money tell, or what does your interaction with money tell the world about what you believe about God? Because remember, the way you deal with your money preaches. It sends a message. What is the message that the way you deal with your money tells people? What is it preaching? Uh, Think about your marriage. Are you following Jesus in the way that you regard your marriage and your spouse? What does your marriage tell the world about what you believe about God? Remember, Jesus wants to reorder your thinking. He wants to completely change the way you see the world Uh, From the way the world thinks about money, the way the world thinks about marriage or murder or anger or lust or any of those things, Jesus raises the bar and he says, I have a better way. And the only way to, to achieve that better way is by faith in me. You're never going to do it on your own. You need to follow me to have this new way of thinking, this new way of seeing the world. And so I want to encourage you, do you have that new way of thinking? Has Jesus given you those new eyes to see this world and this kingdom that he is building? And then I also want to challenge you and ask you, how are you participating in that kingdom building? When it comes to that dishonest manager, right, who is commended for his shrewdness, how are you using your resources in kind of a backwards countercultural way to build up the kingdom of God so that you'll have those friends who are there in eternity, waiting to receive you and take care of you. This is the challenge for each of us, to to see the world differently, not according to how we see it, but to how Jesus sees it, and then to follow him down that path. Let me pray for you. God, we thank you for your word. We thank you for this backwards way of thinking, Lord, that sometimes seems very backwards. We confess, and, and Lord, we also confess that we oftentimes have a difficult 
time following you. Um, Lord, I ask that you would give us eyes to see this world in the way that you would have us see it, according to your righteousness, according to your Son. So, Lord, that we could invest in the kingdom. We could use what you have given us to build up the kingdom and to invite people into it. Lord, I ask that you would bless our marriages, that we would regard our marriages in a new way, a way that shows the world that we are following Jesus. We're not just doing things the way we want to do them, but we're doing them the way he wants to do them. God, give us the faith to follow Jesus closely, step by step, day by day, and give us those new eyes to see so that we can be his disciples. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.